This is the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology, covering industry analysis, data, and market forecasting for quantum technology markets worldwide. Now, here's your host, Christopher Bishop. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Quantum Tech Pod. I'm delighted you're listening. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're sitting on the planet. My guest today is Eden Figueroa Berrigan. So Eden and I actually met in person, imagine, at our Inside Quantum Technology event in New York last November, and I was fascinated by the work that he's doing in developing the quantum internet and quantum repeaters. Needless to say, I was delighted when he accepted my invitation to be a guest here on the Quantum Tech Pod. So Eden is the quantum information technology research leader and an associate professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Stony Brook University on Long Island. He's also a Brookhaven National Laboratories researcher in both the Computational Science Initiative and the Instrumentation Division. Dr. Figueroa's research group at Stony Brook University focuses on novel quantum memories and processors that will enable future quantum information networks and computing. His work is based on solid-state and atomic physics using photons to communicate and atoms as nodes to store and process quantum information. So, hi, Eden. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, Chris. How are you? Uh, It's my pleasure being here. Thank you so much for the invite. No, thank you for joining me. Looking forward to our conversation. So, I always like to start the podcast by asking my guests to share a bit about their own personal quantum journey, if you will. So, my objective is really twofold. Uh, First of all, give our audience a sense of what you did before you started working in quantum information science, both at Stony Brook and Brookhaven but also to orient our listeners to the fact that there are many different paths that people can take to get into the field of quantum information science. So I'd ask you to please share with our listeners a bit about your background and your path so far, like where you grew up, uh, where you went to school, what you studied, maybe insight into the research you were doing as well as other organizations where you contributed. So tell me about it. Absolutely. So this has been... um... I would say a, a very happy journey of mine, and, and, and then you will see what, what I mean when I tell you all the places that I've been and, and all the really amazing people I got the opportunity to work uh, along the journey, right? So I, I was born in, in Mexico, right, in, in the beautiful city of Guadalajara, right, which is one of the, one of the largest cities in Mexico, and you probably know it for everything you like about Mexico, such as tequila, mariachi, and tacos, because they yes. actually come from there, right? So it's it's a great city. That's where I grew up. That's where I went to high school, right? Still, um, lots of lots of my family still lives there, right? So when when I finished high school, then I moved to to another city in Mexico that is called Monterrey, right? Monterrey is the the industrial capital of of the country. And it also has some some really good universities. Among them, there is a, you know, in Mexico, very famous uh, Monterrey Institute of Technology, right, which is a, an engineering school. And that's where I did my bachelor's degree in uh, physics engineering, right? So you can already see that almost from the beginning, I was already thinking about becoming an, an experimental physicist, right? Yeah. And then wow. once once I finished my, my physics engineering degree there, then I did a, a master's degree in optical engineering, right? So in a sense, I was already sort of orienting myself in the path of eventually working with photons and so forth, right? Yeah, wow. Exactly. So then- A long after, time. We did this a long time. That's right, man. That's right. And then so yeah, yeah. after I finished my, my master's degree there, then I decided that it was time to 
to go and go and meet the world, right? So then um, I was accepted to do uh, my PhD in in Germany in a place that is also very beautiful that is called uh, Constance, right? The University of Constance, which is a town in Germany that is very close to the Swiss border that has this uh, magnificent Lake Constance, right? Which is beautiful. It's like a movie set, basically. At the time, that relatively small university was the center of all things quantum optics in Europe, right? They had like, you know, some of the first quantum tomography experiments that ended up being the basis of many of the things that we do these days. And also the the first voice Einstein condensate was also made in Constance. So he was like, you know, very lucky that uh, Professor Alexander Lubovsky kind enough to accept me in his group. So that's how we started my journey in, in, in a PhD. That's how I started working in quantum optics. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's also how I started working in quantum memories. No, those were the first, the first days when we started looking into these things, and and perhaps also happily, right? Uh, one year after I arrived to Germany, and I was already, you know, trying to learn German and you know be be a good guy there. My my supervisor Alex Lubovsky told us, well, you know, um, I just accepted a position at the newly created Institute for Quantum Information Science in Calgary, Canada. So we got to move, guys. <laughs> and wow. so what we did, right? We, we moved the whole laboratory from, from Constance all the way to Calgary. Really? Right? This, is, this is important because the Institute for Quantum Information Science in Calgary that Professor Barry Sanders was forming at the time, it was really one of the first institutes exclusively dedicated to the study of quantum information science. So, well, we ended up there. And it, again, it was part of a really magic journey. I think I had a great time, all things Canadians. Canadians are super people, right? And, and over there, right, the, the scientific work really started taking off. And this is where we demonstrated what at the time was, we're talking about 2008 or so, the first quantum memory that actually was able to, you know, produce quantum states of light. And then we were able to store them using atoms. This was really, at that time, one of the main, one of the main experiments that were ever performed, right? And that was really, that sort of set my journey into motion, if you want, right? Because I realized that, well, on the one side, there is such an interesting field to study, but also on the other hand, there were so many things to do left that, you know, we just had to keep rolling, right? And then after, after I finished my PhD in Calgary, right? I mean, evidently, because, uh, you know, this experience that we had to move back from Germany to Canada, I decided to go for a postdoc in Germany, right? And I was actually very lucky, extremely lucky, that uh, Professor Gerhard Rempe from the Max Planck Institute of Quantum Optics, you know, he was kind enough to accept me as a postdoc in his group, which at the time was, and still is, of course, um, one of the main leaders in the field of uh, atomic physics and quantum optics in the world. So, so to me, you know, that, that's the experience where you basically enter, enter the next level where you already start seeing what, um, you know, the state of the art could be, right? And, and that, was, that was a really wonderful time. I went back to Germany. I, I really love it. And we got to do some really, really fancy science. The, the, the highlight of, of the time there was that we were able to design and, and make, right, together with, the, with Professor Gerhard Rempe's team there, what at the time was the first quantum network 
of interconnected atomic quantum devices, right? That's a work in, in, in 2011 and 2012, right? So you can already see how this journey has gone, right? We went from doing the original quantum memory work in Calgary to doing what at the time really was the original quantum network work over there in, in Munich, right, in Europe. And, and, and again, it was the same thing, right? It, it, it was this, this journey in which you see that the possibilities of things and you are effectively starting to see how can you build them. So then, you know, when, when you know, sadly, when my, time in, when my time in Germany was done and I had to apply for positions, right, I then, uh, again, you know, my lucky journey brought me to, brought me to Long Island to, to Stony Brook University, where, you know, dedicated people have planned that they wanted to expand their, their quantum information science portfolio. And they wanted a person that, you know, was doing atomic physics and, and so forth, right? And, and then you already see it, right? Like having the knowledge that was gathered from Calgary and from, and from Max Planck. Then for me, once I started being an independent researcher and I started setting up my group here in Stony Brook, the journey has always been, well, we learn how to do memories. We learn how to do networks. Can now we go into the very, very hard task of trying to build quantum repeaters, right? Right. So, so you see that it's been, um, it's been an evolution, but it's been an evolution yeah. that has been based upon scientific results and, and, and developing things uh, from the ground up. Yeah, well, uh, I hope I didn't take like, too long there, Chris. Like, <laughs> no, no, that's Chris. So, so all the way I was saying, you've been doing this for like, it sounds like almost 10 years is kind of when you started. Well, I'm going to say 2003. So yeah, I think wow, it's going to be more like 20 years, right? <laughs> 20 years. Oh, my goodness. So you're, you're one of the seminal players for sure. So thank you for sharing that. I think that's fascinating. What a journey. And you say you were lucky, but I think they were lucky to have you uh, <laughs> engaged in doing the work. So just saying. Um, I want to continue the conversation by saying congratulations. Based on your accomplishment in 2020, I read that you and your team achieved transmission of single photon qubits in a configuration covering a total of approximately 87 miles between Stony Brook and Brookhaven. Uh, and it's listed as the longest successful quantum communication link experiment in the United States. So I thought we could start sort of at a high level and then drill down into maybe more about the physics of it. But um, tell tell our listeners how you did that. So you used photonic entanglement sources, I'm reading again, to simultaneously store and retrieve quantum correlations in four quantum memories on both campuses. So tell our listeners a little bit how you did that. All right. So then I'm, I'm going to try to connect to the, to the story that I told you before, right? So as you've seen through the journey, right, we've been able to develop quantum memories, right? And we thought about already how to start connecting them. So then the scientific story on here on the Stony Brook side, right, um, has always been tried to increase the number of devices that are connected while at the same time demonstrating that the connections are possible without losing the quantum information that is in there, right? Yeah. So then about three years ago or so, right? Again, this lucky journey of mine just keeps rolling, right? I was, I was contacted by, by Gabriela Carini, right? Gabriela Carini is now the, the instrumentation division leader in BNL, right? And then, as you know, well, about three years ago or so, there was this big boom in which, thanks to the American Quantum Initiative Act, the Department of Energy then started engaging in um, quantum activities, right? right. That, that before, they were not part of their mission, right? And as part of that, um, you know, Gabriela was tasked with starting a quantum information science and technology program in BNL. And, you know, I keep mentioning the word lucky, right? Because, well, 
Stony Brook and BNL are just right there, right? Uh, you know, 15 miles apart yeah. on the eastern side of the island. And, and I think she also saw that, and she saw the possibility that using the technology that was developed in Stony Brook, we could start thinking about building, building um, quantum networks for real, right? In which the connections between two quantum laboratories can actually be made using commercial fiber, right? So then that's, that's the journey that we embarked ourselves about three years ago or so, starting to really build first a quantum laboratory in BNL that, you know, parallels and shares the technology that we develop in Stony Brook, and then develop the infrastructure and the fiber connections to connect both laboratories to really try to see if quantum technology can go telecom, right? So in the experiments yeah. that you mentioned there are exactly the, the series of first experiments in which we start doing these connections, right? The one that you mentioned there is basically uh, the experiments that we do where we send polarization qubits, right? So attenuated single photon states in which we are encoding a qubit in the form of a polarization superposition. So then basically the idea was to see if that superposition will survive the trip from Stony Brook to BNL, right? And still be yeah. a quantum superposition encoding quantum information when, once it got there, right? So then that, that was our first experiment and it actually worked. You got to do a lot of what is called um, quantum enabling work in order to make those fibers to be um, compatible with quantum operation and then for it to work, right? It's not for free. You got to prepare them in advance and then you got to be sure that everything is, is fine. But if you do so, then it works, right? Which is a great thing, right? We, we were not sure, but it actually does. Yeah. And then the second set of experiments that we're doing right now, right, is as, as you hear it already in the, in the whole storyboard, right? It's all about quantum memory, so you can build quantum repeaters. So then our latest experiment uh, was then connecting two quantum memories, right, over this long fiber that basically goes from Stony Brook to BNL. That's where we have the, the measurement station. And then we have another fiber that goes from Stony Brook to BNL. So these are two independent fiber channels, right? And then we have two independent quantum memories on the Stony Brook side that we control. We demonstrate that these quantum memories are also compatible with telecom operation. And then we do a measurement in BNL, which is meant to uh, eventually entangle the memories. So then you can create entangled state of the matter qubits in the memories that is shared over 158 kilometers of, of fiber, right? So that's kind of like what we're doing right now. I, I have the feeling that these experiments are at the moment very unique right, in the sense that I think we are the only ones so far that are really trying to do these long-distance experiments with quantum memories, right, which is the yeah, important so, thing. So two of the most compelling aspects for me of your project is the fact that, one, you're using existing fiber, right, for relaying these continuous and discrete variables, but also that you're doing it with scalable room temperature quantum memories. So tell me more about the physics of that. Like, how does, how does that work? How are you able to do that? Absolutely. So, so now you see here a little bit of the of the argumentation that we're putting forward, right? As we were looking into building these quantum networks a few years ago, right? The questions always came, what, what are going to be the, the nodes that you're going to be using, right? What kind of technology you have to be using? And then the, the moment, right, you start doing the, the networking engineering, right, or as to how this has happened, you realize that the quantum internet 
architectural backbone must be shared with the backbone of the normal internet because nobody's going to pay for you to build a new backbone of, of co-location facilities yeah. and fibers. That's a great then, point for sure. That's right. So then, um, you know, I've never been, but three years ago, I made it all the way to one of these co-location facilities, uh, you know, in the middle of Long Island. And then if you see what's in there, you see that it's basically just, you know, very large rooms that are full with, with racks. And in every single rack, you have servers, switches, time synchronizations, amplifiers, and so forth. So then, you know, kind of like this, uh, this, this dream came to me, right? That I was like, well, you know, we need to bring that technology, quantum technology, into these kind of facilities, right? And in order to do so, what one has to do is we has to do a, a technical progression in which the technology becomes more and more friendly towards being deployed elsewhere from a laboratory, right? And that's where I where I took this decision, but which actually wasn't that hard, really, because um, I was thinking, well, if we really want to simplify and scale, we need to try to really do as simple of a system as we can, yeah. while still remaining all the quantum properties. Because I mean, otherwise it wouldn't work, right? So looking Makes back sense, into totally. the yes, into the working Calgary, our the first quantum memory that was implemented in my PhD thesis, right? It was a room temperature quantum memory using atomic vapor. So then, you know, we have to dial it back and then bring that technology back and, you know, do more and more demonstrations that that technology could be the basis of what we wanted to do, right? And that's exactly what we've been doing by precisely trying to avoid cryotech and in that way facilitate the scaling, the massive scaling that is needed to actually build a quantum internet. Fascinating. So the segue is, so you, I know you call your approach LiquidNet, just a heads up to everybody from a branding perspective, cool name. Um, but wanted to get your take on, you know, are there, there are other quantum networks being deployed, right? So there's certainly the one um, that QTech is doing in Delft in the Netherlands, and I know Chicago Quantum Exchange, they're connecting Argonne and Fermi. Can you tell me, you know, what's different about the LiquidNet approach? Like, are, are, And is there collaboration? Do you guys share ideas or technology or uh, learnings or best practices? How does that work? All right. So I'll, I'll give you my two cents, right? Okay. I mean, right. You know, please please keep in mind that these dear colleagues are, are competitors to some form, right? So I yeah, got to be yeah. respectful of their work while, while still, you know, thinking about very highly about mine, okay? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so basically, <laughs> what what is important here, right, is perhaps at an outreach level, right? A lot of people talk about the quantum internet and, and entanglement connections and so forth. But then, if you if you really look from a point of view of the engineering and the physics, right, like the actual nitty gritty details of how things are built, you realize that at the core of the technology, that is what makes the difference. So. For example, the, the two ones we mentioned there, right? Uh, the great work of um, of Professor Hansen and, and Professor Berner in Delft. They are trying to build these quantum internet connections using solid state systems, right? In particular, they, they use these, these very famous um, NV diamond centers. Right, right? yeah. So then this is, yeah. this is a route that the condensed matter community has put forward already for many years. And, and they believe that they can do that right? As many of the systems that the condensed matter community uses, right? In order to achieve quantum coherence, you need to cool them down, right? So the same thing applies to the approach that my dear colleague, Professor David Ashalom and colleagues are following in, in the Chicago Quantum Exchange. 
they also want to use um, condensed matter systems, right? Maybe evolutions of, of these um, vacancies in diamond to, to pursue that storyline, right? Now, if you really go at the core of how the systems work, right? In this particular case, the systems that they use, right? They are not quantum memories in the sense that when we think about quantum memories, you know, we always think about these photons flying in the fiber, and then eventually you get to a memory, and then you are able to store the photon in the memory, right? That will be an advanced concept that is called absorptive quantum memories, meaning that they absorb the photon, they store the information, and they retrieve it, right? That's what we're thinking here. That's the kind of quantum memories that we are using here in our quantum network. The types of quantum devices that they use in Delft and in, and in Chicago, they are called sort of quantum registers in the sense that they create the information and then they are able to then send the information in the fibers, but they do not have the capability to store the photon and buffer it, right? This is a key difference between the two approaches. And, you know, maybe you heard about this. This is what people call type one quantum repeaters in the case of Delft and Chicago, right? Or what is called a type two quantum repeater, which will be our case, or for example, the case of, you know, my, my dear colleague Gerhard Rempe in, in Germany, or also my dear colleague Jan Wei Pan in China, where, where we have gone the route of rather using atomic systems with the add-on that now you have these in and out quantum memories, these absorptive quantum memories, which I personally personally believe are the key to scale everything up and make everything work on demand. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are my yeah. two cents. As you can see, these are two Great. sort of competing ideas. I'm not going to say <laughs> which one is better, but certainly you know they both have pros and cons. Well, no, personally, I believe that the more sophisticated one is the one that uses absorptive quantum memories. But that's of course my my very personal opinion. No, thank you for sharing that because I think people have, you know, people are curious about different approaches and and viability uh, um, of you know the different kinds of technology that people are exploring. So thank you for explaining that. As you can see, as the technologies are different in essence, right? This is what makes at the moment hard for the teams to sort of like you know see it and talk details and and talk to each other and collaborate because we're actually building sort of different technology, right? So then the collaboration has been more at the level of ideas, right? When you think about an agnostic network, regardless of what technology you're using, how is that you control it? How is that you make it user-defined? I think that that's the realm of ideas where the community is starting to collaborate. Great. Okay. So I want to shift gears sort of back to the idea of uh, your team. I read you have a team of 12 graduate students and two undergrads. Um, so tell me more about the team. Again, wanting to orient our listeners to the kinds of skill sets that you uh, are engaging with on your team. You know, what are the various areas of expertise or disciplines where there's focus? And then the follow-up question is like, is there a resource that you wish you had like, <laughs> that would help you yeah. make a breakthrough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, first of all, I have to say that I love my team. You know, I, I'm nothing without my team and without all my students, uh, all the things that I go there and talk about wouldn't, wouldn't be done. I, you know, again, you know, I keep talking about this fortunate journey, you know, in Stony Brook, we actually get to have some of the best grad students that come to the United States. Uh, 
And, you know, one of the things is like normally they come to Stony Brook and they have this dream of becoming a string theory person, right? Because Stony Brook was one of the birthplaces of, of these amazing theories, right? And then, you know, they realize that perhaps there are other ways that people can uh, earn their daily bread. And then they come and work with me, right? And, and the greatest thing is like they are extremely smart. And then the moment you put them to do experimental work, and after a few months of training, they become these fantastic hybrid physicists that understand their quantum science, you know, their quantum field and so forth. But they also know how to do experiments. And that is this wonderful combination. This is what people sometimes refer to quantum smart workforce, right? Because not only do they know their physics, they also know what to do with it at the experimental and engineering level, right? And this is what I'm so fortunate because I really met many, many, many students and eventually they were able to develop these, these skills, right? And, and, and then after that, they went to work in, in wonderful places, either in industry or, or in other academic settings in, in some great universities. So, so, so that's my team and, and this is why they are so great. I would say if, um, if I were to have a resource that I don't have, it will be two. Yeah. Right? One, it will be more students like those. Because, you know, my my life has always been enriched by working with such amazing, great young people. And then, of course, the other one will be like, well, I will have to have more money, of course, so then I can pay them accordingly to their skills, right? <laughs> I mean, those will be the ones that I think we need. And 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 then with as the team expands and so forth, right, then we can reach these high-end goals that we have for our research. Yeah, great. So when doing networking, you, you and I had spoken earlier, you're dealing with sort of three kinds of companies. I want to just drill down into that for a moment. We, we don't have to get too detailed, but it was fascinating to hear, uh, hear you describe sort of the three kinds of uh, companies and business models, right, by in, inference that you deal with when you're dealing with networking, whether it's, in this certainly this case, you know, your quantum networking efforts. Can you just share a little bit with our listeners about those three companies, what roles they play, what kind of interactions they have. Yeah. So as we were saying before, right, as we really try to build a quantum internet that is sharing the infrastructure blueprint with the classical internet, um, there is always sort of three levels of companies that one has to start dealing with. The first ones are the ones that possess the optical fiber. Those are in general, maybe local firms that at some point in time invested heavily when the fiber beds were put in place, you know, maybe a couple of decades ago. And then they rent the fiber, right? The business model is to rent the fiber to whoever is using it, right? So those will be the first ones, right? Um, here on Long Island, we work with a company that is called Crown Castle, which is our local fiber company. Then once you have the fiber and you're thinking about designing experiments that go over several co-location facilities, therefore covering extended uh, distances, then you need to work with the local companies that administer each of the co-location facilities, right? And they work a little bit more as a, as a real estate company because literally what they do, they rent real estate in the co-location facilities and what they rent you is a space so then you can put your racks with equipment, right? So then with those, uh, let's say, internet real estate companies, well, when you come and tell them, oh, I'm going to put some quantum equipment in there, the first thing they're going to tell you is like, what? <laughs> so then, you know, you have to convince what? them that this is not uh, an atomic bomb or anything, right? So it's all safe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then, you know, once you secure that, these two levels of, of companies, right, then the next thing becomes how do you control 
all these quantum nodes that are located over extended distances, right? And then for that, you need then um, the software management and control that is being, you know, developed and advertised by the big networking companies that you know, such as AT&T, Verizon, Cisco, and so forth, right? So these are the three levels of things that you that you got to be dealing with. And remember, this is just to set the infrastructure, right? On top of all that, then you need to build a quantum infrastructure that is telecom compatible, right? And then you're already starting to get your um, quantum internet infrastructure in place, right? So it's a little bit of a, of a journey that you got to go there, right? Wow. So, yeah, no, thank you for sharing that perspective. So, Eden, I just want to wrap up by thinking about what's ahead, about the future, right? So could you share a little bit about your, certainly your roadmap, what your team has got planned? I read that you're looking to teleport quantum-based messages through the air, across Long Island Sound, maybe up to Yale and Connecticut. But probably even more importantly, you know, ask you to wax philosophic, if you're like, you know, what's your vision of the impact of a quantum internet, quantum repeaters, kind of broadly speaking, like, you know, where will it gain traction? What will be the benefit to um, the business and society and culture? All right, so I'll, I'll try to answer each of them. I mean, now we're digging here a little bit into the future, so I'm going to do my yeah. Nostradamus impersonation and try to predict <laughs> yeah, what's going to happen. Please, yeah, okay? yeah. Look into your crystal ball. Right. So <laughs> I think on the on the technical side, right, I think we have seen enough with already all these, you know, 10 years of development here on Long Island to think about the possibility of really expanding the network, right? So the two really mega plans that we have that are already, are already going are the expansion of our quantum network here on Eastern Long Island to reach the city of New York. Um, as we speak, actually, all the procurement with all these companies that we were discussing before has already actually been done. Wow. And we expect to open a fiber connection between my laboratory in Stony Brook and uh, the CUNEC laboratory, right? We didn't discuss about CUNEC today, but you know that is our startup company in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. Yeah. So the fiber connection to CUNEC is going to open in two or three weeks. So we can start doing telecom entanglement distribution experiments between Stony Brook and Brooklyn. So that's going to be all over 2022. Great. Wow. The other, the other expansion that we have in mind that you mentioned, right? Thanks to our collaborator, the great Hong Tang, Professor Hong Tang in Yale, right? We have this vision of trying to bring some of this quantum information from Long Island all the way to Yale. Right, and because of course we don't have a fiber that goes all the way to New York City and then goes back to to the Connecticut area, we want to do this in free space, right? And then send these qubits through the air on top of the Long Island Sound, right? So we have a couple of proposals, and we are already developing a lot of the technology together with our uh, great colleagues in in BNL, Justine Hop and Paul Stankus, to do these free space connections that number one work. Because long-distance free space connections carrying entanglement have not been demonstrated yet. And of course, to make it even harder, we need to um, make this compatible with quantum memories and quantum repeaters, right? Mm -hmm. So then the whole, uh, the whole network works, right? And, and now you see where I'm going with this. If yeah. we can make connections to the city of New York and we can make connections to Connecticut, right? Then we can think maybe, I don't know, 10 years from now or something like this to keep expanding our network and then look upstate New York and connect these things with our SUNY partners in Albany, in Buffalo, our colleagues in Rochester. And then we also think about starting building quantum network connections also to the other parts of the Eastern world of the United States, 
starting from Connecticut, then we can then we can get to Boston and so forth. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm seeing. That's the plan, right? Hopefully, eventually, we can make it happen. That would be awesome. Yeah, very exciting. That's right. And then so imagine that we really build these networks. And then I have to say, we are already building them. The only question is whether or not we can scale them enough so then we can they make this a very big intercity quantum internet. Once you have that, Chris, the, the really exciting thing is that now you go, in, you go into a regime. And remember, this is why I always keep saying that the in and out quantum memories are so important because what you want is once the entanglement has reached these destinations, you want to keep it. And you want to keep it until somebody, some user actually tells you, now I need it. Right? This is this is why the buffers are so important, and this is what I think that eventually type two quantum repeater networks must be built, because that's the only way that you have to develop on-demand user-defined entanglement distribution tasks and applications. Right? Because imagine, like in this call, right? If we want to be at 11 a.m. and both about to start a communication, we will have we will need the entanglement to be ready for us. So then we can do, for example, transfer of information using teleportation and so forth, right? So then I think that's where things are going, right? To applications where users in different ends say, oh, I need the entanglement now. And then so the entanglement must be ready for you there in these quantum memory banks, right? So then you can use it. And then you can do all these great things in which the information is now not transported through the fiber, but is actually transported to teleportation. And what is transported in the fiber is the actual entanglement. This is where I see things going. This is where I think eventually everything will go, right? And something important there, we know of a few applications that this kind of user-defined entanglement distribution will have. Yeah, so where do you think it'll gain traction? Like where do you right. think people will be, how will they be using it based on your where you sit, your visibility into real-world applications? That's right. So I think there's a few user use cases that we know, right? Of course, yeah. the moment you have this kind of teleportation, right? You have, first of all, you have cryptography, quantum cryptography encoded information for free, right? Because everything is based on the same principles, right? So say teleporting information that is secured and protect, I think is going to be, is going to be the first use case, right? Between, for example, firms, governments, national labs, and so forth, right? Yeah. And then, the other one that is also very exciting that, that I think it's also very feasible is once you have this, you know, you always ask yourself when I say user defined, who are your users, right? So in this case, the users are, you know, these people that have information that is so important that they needed to protect it and they want it teleported, right? So then they, there is nobody in the fibers trying to pick on them, right? If you teleport it, nobody can get it, right? Yeah. So, and then the second one is if your users, for example, are, Physicists in different laboratories that are doing different kinds of physics, like high energy physics, observational physics, astronomy, and so forth, the moment you can assist them with entanglement, right? The idea is that by building this really large network of, of sensors that they have available, right? The level of sensitivity in many of the measurements they do, for example, in, in the how, how much resolution you can get by looking at the stars or, or how much sensitive you are to, for example, um, very important particles that so far we have not detected, I think those will be the levels that then we can reach once entanglement reaches those laboratories over long distances. So this is the other use case that, that you know, we're thinking right now, which I think is very important. Networks of quantum sensors to do quantum astronomy and, and 
for example, particle detection and so forth. You know, those are the ones that we know that I think are advanced enough that we can say that they will work. But I, I will always put my dreams more into things that we don't know. Right? <laughs> I want to yeah. think about this as, as the laser, you know, like in the 60s, somebody come and, and say, okay, now we have a laser. And, and at the time, we really didn't know, hey, what are you going to use a laser for? And then it happens to be that we actually were able to create the internet thanks to lasers. Yeah. So, you know, I to quote Great. the movie Field of Dreams, right? If you build it, they will come. So if, <laughs> if we build the quantum internet, these new applications that we don't even know right now, they will come in the same way that all the applications that we didn't know of the internet came. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like where I'm with this, right? We know a few use cases, but many of them we don't even know now. But that doesn't mean that we should not build the quantum internet. Yeah. So Eden, that's what a great way to end this conversation. Fantastic. Um, I, I love that. Yeah, paraphrasing that if you build it, they'll come. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen, right? It's uh, which makes it so exciting and so interesting to be involved in this space, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I want to thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm going to invite people to follow you on LinkedIn. Um, I'm going to mention that if people want to learn more about Dr. Figueroa's research group, you can Google it, but also I'll read this off. It's qit.physics.sunisb.edu. You can find more about him and his group there. And I encourage you to uh, do a Google search on YouTube for Eden Figueroa. He has many really interesting videos available. So, Eden, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Hey, thank you so much for the invite. It was wonderful talking to you today, Chris. Thanks so much. Thanks again, Eden, for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please share this podcast on social media channels to increase the impact of my conversation with Eden. Listen to my other podcast episodes if you haven't already. And please connect with me on LinkedIn. This has been a production of Inside Quantum Technology. You've been listening to the Quantum Tech Pod, brought to you by Inside Quantum Technology. For more information on this episode or other topics relating to quantum technology, visit InsideQuantumTechnology.com.